Namaskar. Hello and welcome to P Guru's channel. I'm your host, Sri Ayer. Uh, today is Tuesday evening, but usually uh, we have a guest on Monday nights. He couldn't make it. And we have trying a new guest today. And uh, let me introduce you the name of the person. Can we have the name, please? Uh, his name is Jambulakshmi Dandayudam Dandapani. We all call him as Dandapani. Let's welcome Mr. Dandapani. Thank you. Please vote for Congress and Sonia Gandhi, Rahul Gandhi, Hamare leader. Hai. Thank you. <laughs> you are you are something else, Mr. Dandayadapani. Oh, no, no, no. Dandapani. What is this? You got me confused. Why this name change all of a sudden, sir? <laughs> Uh, no name change, sir. This is my original name only. But party changed because one Congress leader gave me this and I said, very good. Thank you very much. I'm now going to embarrass you with it. <laughs> so do you know the Hindu name of Mr. M.K. Stalin? Uttvel Karnanidhi Stalin only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a Hindu name also. Ah, I didn't know. What is it? Okay, we will say it at the end of the program. Let's start the question and answer, please. We have only six questions unanswered from last week. We're going to jump right through that. And we are work, going to work through the entire list today. Let's go for the questions, please. Number one, Mr. Lee wants to know, what do you think transpired between the meeting of Modi and Kamala Harris? Is there a threat from the USA hanging over the Indian government, which the PMO is mum about? Did they have a meeting? I haven't seen any transcripts or the readout. I think this so was the far. September meeting he may be referring to. Oh, then. Yeah, yeah. No, nothing. Nothing. Uh, I don't think Kamala. Look, Kamala is completely cut out of government. Nobody likes her. So she wouldn't have much of a brief. It will just be talking points. That's about it. Yes. And uh, evidently she had given a lecture about democracy to him and he's, he's sort of brushed her off. Anyway, that's what I heard. Uh, let's go to the next question. Abhishek, sir, there has been there have been various allegations of sexual violence against Kashmiri women, women in Maoism, after affected areas and in Northeast. How true are all these? What steps does the army take to counter this? So, uh, look, in uh, if you look at the reports, uh, the statistics uh, in Kashmir, uh, you'll actually find that Kashmir had the highest amount of uh, uh, gender violence. And that reduced drastically after AFSPA. And as restrictions have started getting lifted, uh, uh, so uh, as uh, you know, the uh, as it got uh, less draconian, uh, the incidents of violence have been picking up. Now, do I, I? I don't know what angle you're approaching this from. Is it uh, armed forces against uh, Kashmiri women? Uh, there have been a few cases here and there where it does happen. They almost always get uh, uh, investigated in their entirety uh, to the point where sometimes it is actually unfair uh, on the troops. But, uh, you know, that is the nature of the gender uh, laws in this country. Uh, but it does uh, have incidents happened. Yes. Uh, is it possibly underreported in a country like India? Almost certainly. Yes. Okay, women in Maoism affected areas is a completely different ball game. Remember, uh, with a lot of these uh, uh, Maoist organizations, they are brutal, nasty characters. They're basically uh, the mining mafia dressed up 
as a social justice movement. And, uh, you know, they, in fact, do engage in large scale uh, sexual violence on women. With the Northeast, uh, the problem is the reporting is terrible. But I can tell you as a general rule, uh, with a third world military, there will be instances of it. The point is that unlike most third world militaries, it is not state sanctioned. And as and when it uh, 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 comes to light, it is dealt with. It is dealt with by the army and it is dealt with very harshly by the army. Like the United States in Vietnam hasn't really covered itself in glory. So, Ashutosh Kumar, do you think America infested with wokeism will spiral to dictatorship? Yeah, almost invariably. Uh, look, this is, you know, basically what it is, is uh, what is wokeism? It has two aspects to it, critical race theory and gender theory. Okay. And what that basically is, is they have replaced the old perpetual class struggle concept of the Marxist manifesto with perpetual gender and perpetual race struggle. Okay. The results are the same. You create such complete, utter economic chaos. Today, what you see in California, California is the new North Korea in that sense, right? It is de-industrializing. North Korea had the second highest per capita income in Asia after Japan till 1979. It de-industrialized. This is what is happening in California as well. It is de-industrializing. Industry will move away. I do not see the course correction happening fast enough. You know, getting rid of three school board members is not the same as stopping the insane push towards taxes and things like that. And the problem is, it is all these works that are shifting to Texas. They'll turn Texas blue, then they will destroy Texas. It is a slow process of destruction. But what you're beginning to see is the beginning of the end of the American empire, just like, you know, the uh, end of the Roman empire was a slow, painful, drawn-out process. Next question, please. Shrey Saxena wants to know, if Sri Lanka approaches India to be merged with us, considering the state of their economy, should we go ahead with it? It's not happening, boss. Let's not go into these hypotheticals. They'll never ask for it. Chiranjit Nadig, which Korean movies, dramas have you both watched watching? Also, I recommend AIM to watch Dashavataram. It's about 12th century Ramanuja devotee persecuted for being a Vaishnavite. Mm. So the Korean ones I watch are uh, the zombie movies. So Kingdom and this, uh, uh, what uh, game was it? Squid Game. Yeah, those were the latest ones I watched. There was another zombie one that came out. I didn't like it much. Like I couldn't watch it beyond the first episode. It's not a patch and kingdom, huh? Because it just follows the normal routine. Uh, Dashavataram, sure, I'll watch it. Uh, uh, Dashavataram was a Kamala Hassan movie, no? That really too. Flashy. That too. That too. That okay. too. Okay. So he okay. he probably wanted to do one better than Sivaji uh, Ganesan over Navaratri. So he did the Tharataram. These are all ego trips. Uh, yours, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I I wasn't that impressed with Squid Games. I watched it. I say the same character who plays the main character in Squid Game is also playing as Chief of Staff in the series called Chief of Staff. You may want to watch that. I like that. And I also liked uh, Vincenzo, 
which many of you thought wasn't so good, but I thought I liked it because they see almost all these things will blend in the Buddhist culture also. Even though we may, we may say that uh, South Korea has become Christian, there is still that Buddhist culture that is still there underneath. You can see that. So I, I like Chief of Staff. So that's my mm. uh, take. Mm. <clears throat> Ibrahim, yeah, go ahead. On the J10 and it's joining the PAF. I don't understand what the J10 can do so far that the JF17 can't. I personally feel that it's something of a panic reaction. Uh, uh, more for show, it will complicate the uh, logistics chain for certain. Uh, personally, I would have, uh, you know, uh, because, you know, that's old Stalin dictum. Quantity brings a quality all of its own. Uh, I think Pakistan should have focused on just buying up hundreds and hundreds of JF-17s. And as a high-end option, retained the F-16. I mean, they have about 72 F-16s, right? So the F-16 could have been the high, the JF-17 could have been the low, uh, and have about three, 400 uh, 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 JF-17s. That would have been fantastic. I still have not understood the logic of the J-10, because whatever it can do, the JF-17 can also do in terms of missiles and things. Today's question and answers. That was quick work. Uh, congratulations. Just seven minutes mm -hmm. and we are already into today's questions. Uh, Mr. Dandayadapani, Dandapani, Chaitanya Naidu wants to know, now that Olympics are over and Putin has done what he was thinking to do all along, what will be Xi's next move and where could it possibly be? Mm, no, no, no. Putin hasn't finished, boss. This is just the beginning. Understand, this is the beginning of slow, painful salami slicing. Okay. Right now, it's Donetsk and Luhansk. Next, it's going to be Zaporozhia. Uh, uh, and ultimately, that entire chain of annexation is going to go all the way up to Odessa. Uh, basically, what he's going to do is he's going to take over the entire west of the Dnieper. And it's going to come to a position where the West really has zero leverage on him. And he'll probably, I, I personally suspect he will take over the whole of Ukraine. But at the very least, he'll take up uh, east of the Dnieper, uh, which would include Kiev, incidentally, because Kiev is east of the Dnieper, if I'm not mistaken. At least part of it is east of the Dnieper. So uh, that is what is going to happen, right? Uh, but he hasn't done what he was always planning to do. This is, understand, he doesn't play to short games. He's playing to a 15-20 year game plan. First it was Crimea, then Donetsk, Lugansk, uh, then it will be Kharkiv and Zaporozhia, etc, etc, etc. Right, Kherson, Kherson is almost certainly on his uh, uh, list. Uh, what is Xi's next move? Well, Xi doesn't uh, really have a move right now. He's threatening. Remember, Putin is brilliant, Xi is an idiot. Therein lies the fundamental difference. The problem is, Brilliant people are dangerous. Uh, stupid people are even more dangerous uh, because they go into very, very dangerous things without calculating. Uh, they are, uh, you know, sort of undeterrable in that sense. Uh, I suspect it will be Taiwan, but it could also be India. Uh, we're seeing a lot of preparation happen, but it's. I suspect it will be Taiwan. I suspect. Manda Karnik wants to know, what is your opinion of the UFO slash UAP phenomenon and how do you see this play out in the near future with American declassification of unidentified flying objects? 
Hmm. See, my thing is very clear. If you have a civilization that can travel at the speed of light, its sensor technology is so advanced, it will come here. It will probably have something equivalent to the, you know, the Star Trek Prime Directive to not see or be seen. And uh, its sensor technology would be advanced enough to be picking up on things here uh, without ever being detected. So, uh, you know, this keeps coming back to that meme that Elon Musk tweeted about how the accessibility and quality of cameras available to each person has uh, increased exponentially since the 1970s. But the footage of UFOs remains always remains the same grainy crap. Right. So I don't buy UFOs at all uh, on a technology grounds and on the basic statistical grounds. Uh, do I believe they exist? Does intelligent life exist? Can they visit Earth? Uh, have they visited Earth? Uh, probably. Yeah, I believe that. that. That is scientifically and statistically almost a certainty. Visited Earth may not be a statistical certainty. So uh, 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 not a scientific, uh, might not have happened. Statistically possible. But uh, yeah, I uh, uh, see there's another theory of this, which is that the... Uh, race that manages to reach the extraterrestrial race that manages to reach earth uh, will not be benign the same way uh, you know uh, when the first brits landed in australia they were not benign when the spanish landed in uh, 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 the americas they were not benign when the vikings landed in america they were not benign uh, uh, so you know uh, 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 they they might not be benign at all uh, which is why i think they've not yet come Abhishek, sir, how and why did Syrian civil war actually start? Hmm, good question, but um, I'm going to condense it. Look, what you have is basically, uh, uh, it's a Sunni majority country. Uh, well, technically, it was Christian, Sunni, Shia kind of balanced. Uh, the French, when they took over the Syrian mandate from the Ottoman Empire after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire in the First World War, they carved out a little Christian majority called Lebanon. Uh, which has since become a Shia majority country. Okay, the Christians have mostly migrated out. There are more Lebanese in Brazil than there are in Lebanon. Okay, uh, it's one of those strange things. But in Syria, what happened is it was an art. It was a Muslim majority, but it was a Shia minority, a Sunni majority. However, it was the Alawite sect, which is a super minority there along with the Christians of the country that formed the kind of tenuous alliance that has always been in power out there, right? Now, this was one layer. The second layer is the traditional. Historically, you go back thousand, uh, more than a thousand years, uh, you will see that Syria, that entire Levant, the Euphrates, Tigris, this thing. There's been Baghdad here, and there has been Aleppo and uh, uh, Damascus here. They've always been in a kind of trilateral struggle for supremacy in the Fertile Crescent. Okay, Jerusalem was never an important city uh, in military terms. It was always uh, in military economic terms. It was always Aleppo, Damascus, and Baghdad. And Baghdad has kind of it, it's been kind of in and out over the last thousand years from that thing. But the main rivalry, because of proximity, has always been between Aleppo and Damascus. Now, what happened is that traditional rivalry between Aleppo and Damascus remains to this day. This is the second year. Uh, 
Why was this layer important though? It's because starting in about 2007 or 9, I forget now, there was a massive drought. It was a multi-year drought, which dried up the entire north. The north depended heavily on agriculture. It dried up most of it and you saw massive population migration from the north, so from Aleppo and the surrounding uh, 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 areas to the south. So it created population pressure. There was a resource competition. Uh, plus there was the demography, you know, too many young men, uh, high growth rate uh, country and things like that. So all these three factors combined uh, where, you know, the pressure became untenable. There was too much youth and there was a religious friction zone of unequal representation. That's how the civil war started. Abhishek wants to know, why was Obama anti-Israel and why is there some kind of black solidarity around the world for Palestine? Mm. No, he wasn't. I wouldn't say he was particularly anti-Israel. He was just obsessed about his legacy. He wanted to achieve certain things and he thought the way of doing it was browbeating Israel and getting a Nobel Prize for peace. I thought he black got it solidarity. fairly early on. Hold on. He got his Nobel Prize fairly early on. Yeah, yeah, he got his Nobel Prize fairly early on. But, uh, you know, there's the legacy issue. Na? I have earned my uh, Nobel Prize. for it was He got the Nobel Prize for nuclear speech that he made in Prague. He got it essentially for defeating George W. Uh, 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 for defeating who? Uh, not George W. Bush. John McCain. Who was, uh, John, John McCain. McCain. He, he, he basically got it for replacing George W. Bush, which the Nobel Committee never liked much. Okay. He was not able to deliver on nuclear weapons because if you look at his government, they came up with plans for new nuclear weapons, which he sanctioned incidentally. So he had to justify his legacy in other ways. Middle East peace was going to be his great legacy. It failed. And this is why he leaned a bit too hard on Israel, which you should never do with an ally. Uh, probably gave in too much to uh, uh, Iran, which again, he should not have done. And... Uh, Ultimately, there was a lot of bitterness in the process, which then became really nasty. Because once the commander-in-chief decides that certain secrets are not to be shared with Israel and you're meant to be hostile to Israel, that temper percolates down the entire ladder. Okay, so that was that. Next, uh, the black solidarity around the world. There is no black solidarity around the world for Palestine. You know, most blacks are Christians. And they are, they're actually more pro-Israel than they are pro-Palestine. The intellectual class is a different beast. But no, there is no major black solidarity for uh, Palestine. Uh, where to go ahead and read? <laughs> uh, what are the impediments to the growth of Eastern India, Northern India, as they are behind Western and Southern India? Okay, the first is connectivity. Hmm? Uh, uh, the uh, second is uh, one is connectivity. The second is terrain. See, growth, Western and Southern India, you'll see are heavy on manufacturing. What is the North going to manufacture that it exports? It could have gone into high tech, uh, which would then require air airplane transport and not ship transport, bulk, big, uh, uh, you know, mechanized uh, goods transport. The problem is to manufacture that, you need an extremely skilled workforce. So there is a Education paucity in the north, you know, uh, the human development indicators are significantly lower. Uh, so uh, they couldn't get into the high end, high end, uh, smaller product, 
high value smaller product manufacturing punjab and kashmir completely different issues uh, to do with terrorism and skipping the industrialization cycles altogether so uh, in a rich state like punjab it was because of terrorism in poor states like bihar and uh, 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 up Uh, and Rajasthan, it's because of that lack of connectivity and the human resources and low human development index uh, to go into high tech. Uh, Eastern India has pretty much because it's been landlocked, it's suffered from these exact same problems plus the terrain. Even local connectivity for a localized market is very very difficult out there. Sachin wants to know your views on Raghuram Rajan's alternative vision for India. I have a very poor view of Raghuram Rajan, so I don't know what his alternative vision for India is. I don't even want to know. Thank you. He's a has been, so don't worry. Dia De Cruz, how can India persuade Western countries to ban Sikhs for justice, Sikh Forum for justice, and are there any ways India or NRS can punish fake news factories like Washington Post, New York Times, etc.? Hmm. Uh, why do you want to ban SFJ, boss? I think that Pannu fellow is great entertainment. Uh, you know, there's a joke going around. Uh, uh, apparently, it's not a joke. It's as a, it's an inter uh, intra government joke that every time that Pannu releases a new video, it becomes like Tahir Shah or Dinchak Puja's new video. Raw folks write to IB folks saying, "Ah, ye tera aadmi hai na." And IB then writes to the National Security Council saying, "Hey, Sale, ye tera aadmi hai. Ye tune laga ke rakha hai. Ye tera asset hai." So they keep accusing each other of running this fellow. They are convinced that he is some agency asset because he makes such a fool of himself. Okay, so uh, on the more serious aspect of it. we have been incapable of doing it what has been run out of canada for example we have been unable to deal with it we are still unable to deal with it no exceptions uh fake news factories like washington post and new york times well look they get a certain class of indians to write for them who do not ghettoize uh who do not need social validation of indians because they're seeking the social validation of white people okay uh is there any way that you can impose a cost penalty on them no there's nothing you can realistically do with these papers uh you can probably keep focusing on facts and start up and fund data projects and things like that which prove them wrong uh, like you know uh, uh nalin mehta's fantastic book taking down this fellow gilles bernier and christophe jaffrelo proving that their entire uh, career has been based on uh, uh, uh fabrication of uh, statistics but other than that uh, you know uh, there's very little you can actually do uh, what you probably need to be doing is having somebody like pramod mahajan who was under vajpai who'd come out every day and put people in their place uh, this government seems incapable of doing it because the people they choose as their pr arms are extremely dumb and incompetent um guys one 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 thing to add to what abhijit said is my understanding that many people who are based in india and claim themselves to be contributing editors so like washington post atlantic new york times etc they the title doesn't mean anything they are not on the payroll i think they get paid per post and even that is not very much this is my understanding i could be wrong abhijit have you been approached by these people by who like the new york times or atlantic or breitbart or something like that they they only go to people who validate their preconceived notions Mm. Mm. 
So no. Uh, <coughs> what is the next question? Yeah, let's go with the next question. Yom Kippur wants to know. Hey, can see. Oh, and by the way, by the way, I'm not Abhijit. I'm Jambu Lakshmi. <laughs> uh, can cinema be used as a means to tell the story of COVID vaccination drive in India and the challenges it faced? Does it have any global appeal? Yeah, that's actually a good idea. Uh, the issue is you can either make it a documentary. Um, though I don't think we have any documentary makers of any great skill uh, uh, on the correct side of the political fence. Uh, you could also make it a masala movie. Uh, but I don't know how successful that will be. You remember that Akshay Kumar movie about... Uh, Batman. Uh, Batman. Uh, Did that do well? So, so, your viewers can tell whether, whether it did well or not. It was critically yeah. acclaimed. You know the answer? Yeah, critically acclaimed means it did do well. So, therein, so you, you might have a critically acclaimed movie. That's about it. Kanda Batata wants to know, what do you think of conversion therapy, LGBT? Why is it controversial and should be banned? Oh, I think it's very good therapy. You know, I went for it and now I'm converted. So, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, I've gone from a raging homosexual to a raging heterosexual now, you know. Hallelujah. I've seen the light. Uh, Jesus came and saved me. Uh, now, seriously. No, it's, it's, it's a really bad idea because it's like forcing a right-handed person, uh, sorry, a left-handed person to write with a right hand. It's, it's very, very traumatic. It leads to severe mental issues. Uh, and mind you, you're not doing it for the comfort of the intended target. You're doing it for your comfort because you're uncomfortable with the other person's sexuality. Okay. So uh, it, uh, it it's actually mentally very damaging. Uh, now, should it be banned? Personally, I believe it is a form of abuse, so it should be banned. Uh on the other hand, if you know, uh, th th this is just one of those things where, uh, look, if a family believes that, you know, prayer or something can change your mind, uh, don't. But uh, how do you prevent it from becoming abuse? That That's the main thing. Uh, one second, sir. I just need to take this call. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'll make a pitch for our uh, viewers. Viewers, this is my latest book, Who Painted My Future Bright? And this is the third book in the series of uh, money series. What I have done here is to try and look ahead in India and see how India is going to be a few years from now. However, there's a lot of stuff here that is actually playing out in real time as we speak. I wrote this book about eight, nine months ago. Uh, I did not publish it right away because of the COVID situation. But then I realized that uh, as things started playing out and my predictions were fairly spot on, I figured that, okay, let me just now release it. It is going into press now. It, the ebook is available. You are welcome to buy it from Amazon. We are going to have the published book also from Amazon. For those of you who are asking, why do I want to sell in Amazon? We are trying to also have a new site called sriayer.com where we are going to start selling our ebooks as well as books. We, we have taken care of some of the deficiencies we feel that are not being filled by Amazon. So, but it takes a huge amount of marketing effort to get the word out there, which is why you see me pumping or pitching my book. So please don't feel offended 
that I'm hard selling. It is just that I need to find a different way to, uh, you know, make these products be available for people. And are you ready, Abhijit? Oh, he's still on the phone. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, he... I'm, done. I'm done. I'm done. Oh, okay. All right. Next question, please. Uh, is a pan-Slavic revivalism possible in the current context of Russia moving into Ukraine? How much support would Russia... Well, let's just take that first question. Uh, look, the Slavic identity is broken, boss. So when you say pan-Slavic revivalism, uh, what do you actually mean? Because the Serbs are the only one willing to see them as Slavs, the Bulgars to some extent. Uh, Romania is not, even though Romania is north of Bulgaria, they follow, they're the only uh, non-Slavs to follow an Orthodox liturgy. Right. Uh, Ukraine is no longer willing to see it itself as Slavic. The uh, split between the churches is so deep right now. And Putin alluded, it to, uh, alluded to it in his speech yesterday. You know, he said how the Ukrainian government has pushed irreconcilably of the division of the Kiev Patriarchate from the uh, Moscow Patriarchate of the Orthodox Church. And anyway, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church was autocephalous from uh, Moscow. Right. So there have been a lot of issues like this. So, you know, when you say Slavic revival, I see none. Okay. Uh, a Russian revival, possibly. Because historically, you know, every time Russia collapses, it collapses spectacularly. But when it comes back, it comes back bigger and nastier than ever before. Uh, so Slavic support, none. Belarus may be Serbia, if at all. Uh, Bulgaria to some extent, and that's about it. Mr. Uh, no, Ashim Se Vijayan wants to know, what's the reason for ISIS recruits from Kerala? Hmm. So, you know, uh, sir, on the side line, there's a lot of interference. Huh, much better now. Yeah. Uh, ISIS recruits from Kerala. Uh, okay. Now, you know, the strange thing about terrorists is, one, they need to have a very international outlook. <clears throat> this is why a lot of them come from Europe, because, you know, Europe is very, very international in its outlook. Uh, you know, everybody learns about three, four languages and things like that. You're generally aware. The second is your average per capita income. Uh, it's not just awareness of what is happening outside. It's also the travel abroad and things like that, that internationalizes you and kind of makes you an internationalist, which in the case of an Islamist makes you an international victim where you feel the pain of other Muslims being persecuted. You feel their fight is your own. If you look at India, the only state that fits that criteria is Kerala. Huge emigre labor in the Gulf. Uh, somewhat higher per capita income than the rest of the country. So both the mental internationalization and the physical travel uh, physical travel uh, internationalization, uh, that is your perfect breeding ground for ISIS recruits because that is what ISIS talks to, the caliphate. So you've seen that a couple of countries have banned their own citizens who have gone to fight with the ISIS from coming back, India and uh, United Kingdom. So we have to wait and see where they're going to settle down. This is a way of no return, though. It's a good warning for those who want to take up arms on behalf of ISIS. Let's go to the next question. Mr. Lee, in a debate on Earth, 
Sai Deepak and Meenakshi Jain stressed that India suffered from two, if not three, colonizations. Does Andalusia and the Balkans consider Berbers and Ottomans as colonizers? Hmm. What's the connection? Uh, I still don't understand what the connection is. But in Andalusia, uh, it is. it used to be seen as an occupation, but now, you know, Spain has gone all... Uh, achy, breaky, wokey, feedy, and all of that. They've not run totally woke, uh, but they're kind of ashamed of their Christian history and all of that. So in Andalusia, uh, there's a huge attempt to whitewash, uh, not Andalusia, in Spain. There's a huge attempt to whitewash uh, and equivocate the crimes of uh, Islam in that area. Mm. Uh, you see it all over. Uh, you know, the tour guides and things, they will deliberately avoid telling you about the massacres and things and they'll only uh, uh, tell you about how great and nice it was. If you want to find the atrocities and things like that, you have to look, even though during Muslim rule in Spain, the atrocities were enormous, enormous. Don't forget Spain was a Muslim majority country at one point of time. Most Spaniards are reconverted people. Mm. Uh, there is actually an association of people out there uh, for people who did not convert. There are only few members there because very few people can actually prove that their ancestors had not converted during uh, uh, Muslim rule. In fact, uh, some of the grandees of Spain, which is to say the relatives of the king, the dukes and things, uh, the second or the third most powerful duke after the king was the Duke of Medina Sidonia, uh, who was a Muslim. They managed to whitewash their entire history, but... Uh, it doesn't derive from the name Medina Sidonia, that it was from Medina, no, uh, uh, but they were Muslims, that clan were Muslim, originally Muslim. Uh, and I think there's a lot of work that's gone into proving that they, in fact, were not native Spanish, they were of Berber stock, uh, were Muslim Berbers, and then, you know, slowly during the Christian reconquest kind of got, uh, uh, went along with the whole thing. The Balkans is completely different because remember their memories of occupation are much more recent. Spain was reconquered by the 1400s. The Balkans got rid of the Ottomans only 100 years or so back, 100, 150 years back. So their memory of Ottoman rule is very, very raw and real. It is at the root of what the Croats did to the Bosniaks, what the Serbs did to the Bosniaks, what the Serbs did to the Kosovars. Uh, you know, what uh, uh, the Greeks did to the uh, uh, Albanians and the Turks, uh, what the Turks did to the uh, 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 Eastern Greeks. Uh, 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 for the Bulgars, it's a very, very real thing. So for all these countries, it's still a uh, raw, uh, I wouldn't say it was an open wound, but it, it's certainly raw. Hardik Thanki wants to know, will India be forced to choose between West and Russia? What do you think of Imran Khan's Russia visit? Mm, no, I think we'll be, we'll manage just fine. Uh, see, the thing about the West is, uh, it's, it's, it's really very simple. Will they ever turn around and say, Ukraine is, uh, 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 rather, uh, are, is the principle of international law more important than losing India as a bulwark against China. It won't come to that. 
will they say that ukraine is more important than imposing katsa sanctions on india and losing all the goodwill we've built up over the last 30 years i don't think they will so uh india will not be forced to choose between the west and russia there will be pressure yes but it'll never come to a push comes to shove kind of a situation uh imran khan's russia visit congratulations to him he will go there he will get some secondary level weapons at best he will not get anything worthwhile from the russians next question please h s e d n a t v the occurring events that are taking place in our country clearly depict that the majority is being bullied you can only bully the majority to an extent how ugly will it get in the future mm. with hindus you can keep bullying them and get away with it that is the story of the last 1000 years so don't worry about it hadik thanki again there are reports that ukrainians have banned chinese takeover of ukrainian defense companies how much technology has china already stolen from ukraine oh they stole a lot uh, during the 90s and 2000s they took whatever they could from ukraine since then ukraine has nothing more to give china anymore so you know this thing that uh, takeover of ukrainian defense companies <laughs> this is like you know trying to bolt uh, uh, trying to lock the uh, cage after the horses have bolted kind of uh, uh, analogy whatever ukraine had to offer china got uh there's nothing left to be sold anymore hardik thanki again oh no this is already answered next question please ravi datani wants to know in another podcast you mentioned that china is using russia the way it uses pakistan how do you think it will impact russia china relations russia accept this as a new normal uh and see china has the good sense to not treat russia now the way it treats pakistan uh russia has to get a lot 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 worse and be under somebody a lot more stupid for china to get that sense of being able to treat russia the way it treats pakistan or even north korea for that matter uh it's simply not going to happen uh even if say putin gets replaced with an idiot uh there there's still a lot that russia has to offer china uh in terms of raw materials and natural resources which pakistan really has nothing to offer other than its strategic salience so uh, russia at least has one more bargaining point pakistan has done Rik Jyoti Hathi wants to know planning for masters in aerospace engineering in Germany is it worth to go to that after leaving a decently paying job in India yeah absolutely dude uh, you know aerospace engineering is one of those things which uh, you know th- the way aerospace is going at the moment it's not remember it's not just commercial uh, airliners and things like that you're l- looking at the uh, beginning of drone delivery and so on so forth uh in another 30 40 years you're also looking at uh, personal air mobile vehicles maybe longer 40 50 years uh but you know all the research work for it goes in at an early stage uh you know the west invests a lot in research even if it's going to fructify only after about 40 50 years you'll still see the investment go in so there's a lot of scope for aerospace engineering 
go for it with your eyes closed as long as you're good if you're not very good at it then don't blame me for it but as long as you're good for it there'll always be a very very decent job for you abroad and if you want to migrate out of india then migration the only question is do you want to migrate to america and have your kids indoctrinated in uh, your kids saying uh, daddy i'm not abhijita yar mitra i'm actually jambulakshmi dandayudham dandavadi and i'm a trans woman cis het uh, something 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 so if that's not a problem with you go fly the coop migrate does india also need uh, this is from prakar does india also need a body like cfr council of foreign relations which could directly report to the pmo well cfr is a think tank uh and it's not a very good think tank at that uh i think we have enough uh, rubbish think tanks uh in uh, india right now that do have access to the pmo and there's nothing the better that's come off it so don't worry about it mangesh puranik wants to know all of us admire and respect dr swami what are the topics issues that disagree him with privatization uh i believe air india should be privatized even though its new uh, 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 uh appointed ceo is a through and through terrorist muslim brotherhood fellow uh, uh that question uh, is coming up <laughs> okay uh i got it she is an out and out islamist uh, he's a danger uh, uh hiring him to be the ceo of air india is like uh, hiring osama bin laden to be the uh, pilot of uh, air india one uh so you know par chalta hai you know i guess ayman azawahiri was a great pioneer of uh, asymmetric warfare so he should be put in charge of our para commando units i guess that also works uh but see that is a bad management decision uh the principle of privatization has to be carried out and i disagree with him in that i think it was the best we could have gotten under the circumstances given what a Uh, toxic asset air india is kanda batata again where does fssai stand in front of us fda and efsa mm so see there are three different organizations the uh the fda and efsa are much more focused on protecting their own farmers first health and safety is actually second fsai is neither about protecting us nor is it about uh, uh our safety because we tend to pick up things from abroad we seldom tend to uh uh, uh see threats coming by ourselves our early warning mechanisms are non existent uh, i can uh, you know i personally there used to be about three different varieties of banana we used to get in tamil nadu uh which have gone extinct because of uh uh uh, uh certain kinds of uh, pests and things like that which these guys never saw coming okay so uh <coughs> they've never been very good at their job uh the fda and efsa are much better the efsa is much much more focused on protecting local produce than i would say the fda is Chaitanya Mayaske wants to know should India have IB for internal issues and raw for countries only which have border with us and a third agency to keep an eye on others 
know why. The wisdom of even, even two, you can't manage properly. It's fine. First, let's look at improving IB and RAW. They're both quite in the dumps, you know. So first, let's look at improving them. Then we'll talk about a third agency, but you don't need it. Hey, one question I have, you know, whether it is IB or CBI or RAW, it looks like they're all taking from the same pool of uh, talent. Is there yeah. any specialized talent they look for? I mean, how do they know? See, uh, they don't not... do... Yeah, so it's a see. This is the problem. They have that same IS mentality, no? Yeah, it's a very. If you old ask mindset, one exam, yeah. it's yeah. a terrible mindset, but it is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it. Guys, you should read my book, "Who Painted My State Purple," where I discuss how the FBI and CIA use technology to solve some of the harder problems. I mean, uh, I you put uh, you know Indian uh, people in those places and see if they'll be able to measure up. That's the answer because when you're fighting a war, it is equal versus equal. And if you're not equal even by 10%, if you're less even by 10%, you've lost it. Next question, please. Sharon Vinnakota wants to know, Hi, Aim and Sriya. Did you guys read India that is Bharat by Jay Sai Deepak? If read, what are your views? You go first. Uh, okay, so... Uh... India, that is Bharat, uh, I found deeply problematic. Uh, it was too communisty for my liking. This prioritization of group rights over individual rights, I can never accept. That is a Marxist construct I will not accept. Uh, there are things like rationality is a Western construct, etc., etc., which I reject in its entirety. Uh, there was virtually nothing in that book I agreed with. Uh, I did find it pretty confused in a sense. Uh, I was actually really alarmed. I was actually really disturbed. Uh, because, you know, when I've spoken to Sai, I've never gotten an inkling that this is the way he thinks about certain things. Because he's supremely rational when you talk to him. And when I read it, uh, I was reading things which I really couldn't believe that Sai was saying these things. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I have not read the book, but if you ask me what kind of a model that the world should be on, that would be compassionate capitalism. We can talk about that later. Maybe Abhijit and I can have a uh, talk uh, about... One second. I, I, I have my notes out here. I wanted to just... Uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, one second. This is a extract from... Sorry. Uh, fifth, and I expect to raise quite a few hackles in this point. In a civilizational state, the core unit is not the individual. Instead, it is the group, rather groups. The logic behind this position is that a European-style nation-state is built on the premise of a nation that is people bound by one or more factors such as language, faith, or ethnicity. Given the internal homogeneity of a European nation-state, it makes sense as perhaps more desirable to treat the individual as the core unit whose rights must be safeguarded against intrusion by the state and other individuals. However, in a civilizational state, every group is rightly interested in protecting their own identity from encroachment by other groups as well as by the state. 
such being the case to claim on the one hand that Bharat is a civilizational state and to argue on the other that individual rights must remain supreme in a civilizational state are logically, historically and constitutionally incongruent assertions whose impracticality, coloniality, naivet are writ large on the face of it. That's an extraordinarily dangerous argument to make. That is the first argument you make uh, for collectivism. Okay, that is the first argument you would make in a, uh, a denominational state like Lebanon. And uh, you know where Lebanon is in terms of civil wars and things like that. This is a long thing. I'm not going to read further into it. Uh, but I have a whole list of extraordinarily problematic quotes in this. Next question, please. Debanjan Banerjee wants to know, as a researcher, which area should I focus upon while researching upon geopolitics that involves Chinese interaction with various South Asian countries? As mm, a researcher, which area do you... What a complicated question. One second. First, Debanjan, try to simplify your questions. That will make your research a lot easier. Uh, well, if Chinese interaction, you're looking at three aspects. First is the historical interaction. The second is the military interaction. And the third is the economic interaction. The fourth is the cultural interaction. Uh, the cultural interaction is probably the least studied of the lot because it's considered a soft power thing. Uh, but remember, it does impact geopolitics huh? because all those South Asian states uh, draw a lot from uh, Chinese heritage, be it Indonesia, be it even the Philippines, uh, Thailand, especially uh, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, more so than anybody else. They draw a lot from their pre-existing Chinese traditions. I would say the cultural aspect, therefore, is the least expensive from an Anglophone point of view, because I suspect you'll be researching all of this in English. Uh, the military is probably the most overdone. The economics is probably the least uh, understood in terms of market compatibility. Next question, please. Shriyansh Patel wants to know, do weapons like Mahashila Kantaka and Ratha Musala exist during... Mahajanapad times. If they do, why the later kingdoms did not use them? Don't use them. Mm. No, look. Look, uh, the Mahashila Kantaka was absolutely used during the Mahajanapada period. The first mention of it is uh, during the Mahajanapada period. And this is attested to by no less than Romila Thapar herself. She is the first person to write about the Mahashila Kantaka. I'm still trying to search for the primary source. She has not sourced it in her book. She has said that the Mahashila Kantaka uh, can be dated back to about 800 uh, BC uh, during the Mahajanapada period. But I'm not seeing the source for it referenced in the, uh, 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 in the book. Now, did succeeding kingdoms use it? They absolutely did. The issue was that our documentation tends to be quite bad. And second, remember, the Mahashila Kantaka is a siege weapon. It is not a field weapon. We very seldom had sieges. They were considered against the rules of war in this country. You did not besiege civilian populations. It was like hoplite warfare. You go out in the field and you uh, 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 fight it out in the field and then you move on. Uh, so, you know, th there was that fundamental restriction uh, that 
if you're not going to engage in siege warfare, your siege weapons are not going to be uh, 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 very prominent, even though you might have even invented it. Harjit Singh wants to know, Abhijit, is future war going to be urban warfare like Stalingrad in India? Mm, no, it's going to be... Info, yeah, it's going to be Stalingrad plus information. Yeah, uh, more than Stalingrad, it's going to be like Grozny. Next question, please. Next question, please. Sanket Singh wants to know what should have Ukraine done after Crimea? They should have gotten their house in order. And this is for the Ukrainian people to have realized that, you know, they were saying that, oh, we depended on Russia and we couldn't grow our economy. Well, for the last eight years, you have not depended on Russia. Your economy has been completely cut off from Russia. Have you grown? No. Your per capita income has gone down. You've become more corrupt. You've become grown a lot worse. Uh, what are you cribbing about? They should have focused on their economy. They should have focused on cleaning things up instead of grandstanding. They did not. Look, Ukraine... Think of, you know, I keep telling you this. Russia is the white Saudi Arabia. If Russia is the white Saudi Arabia, then Ukraine is the white Pakistan. Uh, they constantly find external excuses to blame for their own internal incompetence. Next, please. Harish Padigar wants to know, given the thesis of Indo-Pacific co-prosperity sphere policy of China as professed by Elmer Yuan, isn't it right for China to have a policy of Atmanirbhar Bharat so we can be eventually economic power to counter China's transgressions into neighbor's sovereignty? Have you heard of Asia-Pacific co-prosperity sphere written by Japanese? No. Okay, so essentially this is Elmer's... Uh, uh, argument that the uh, Chinese have now taken German and uh, Japanese document about Asia-Pacific co-prosperity sphere and now they are actually implementing it. If you remember, Japan had a, uh, you know, colonization spree in the 1930s, Yanking and, uh, and then they just kept moving mm -hmm. south. Now people say that they were moving south because they needed petrol. And for that, they need to keep, keep searching. And that's how they just kept conquering. We don't know that. But anyway. So, okay. So understand, Japan's policy and China's policy were first based on industrialization. Okay. And industrialization was based on a global economy. Japan was extremely global before it decided to do Atman. It did Atmanirbhar Japan in the 30s only after the opportunities for global trade stopped. China today is getting bigger and bigger externally based on what it did through global trade. Okay, so shutting yourself off is the exact opposite of it. Atmanirbhar Bharat, you're simply not a big enough market or a rich enough market with enough disposable income to sustain the kind of technologies you need to become Atmanirbhar. It's a vicious cycle. So your question is actually the exact opposite. You can't be Atmanirbhar till you're strong. Once you reach a certain per capita income where you can sustain 
a domestic market, I'd say about ten to twelve thousand dollars per capita uh, would be when you can start sustaining at one point three billion population. Would around roundabout be when you can start sustaining a atmanirbhar policy in the sense that you could have uh, uh, near total, not near total, but say about sixty to seventy percent self reliance. Yeah. What is the per capita income now in dollars for India? Two thousand. Okay, so long ways to go. Hmm. Mandar Karnik say wants to know a follow up question, if I may. Do you think the Space Force project of the USA is a reason for their support of UFO hysteria? I don't think they're supporting UFO hysteria. Uh, they're just supporting. Uh, they just put things out without comment. Okay. Uh, they tend to do this just for tamasha and show every now and then, but space force. Uh, th- there's nothing that the space force are doing that are about uh, you know uh, uh, protecting Earth from ET. So no. Ishant wants to know: Do you think German Empire was over ambitious going into World War One that it could take on Russia, UK, France, or was it a realistic goal as Germans annihilated Russians and was uh, very close to taking Paris. Mm, no, in both World War One and World War Two, they went on forgetting. They thought industrialization was a substitute for manpower. Okay, uh, industrialization is a substitute for manpower when the opponent, when the power differential is massive. Britain was industrialized. Uh, India was totally unindustrialized. So 100,000 white men could control 300 million Indians. And remember, Hitler loved this, though that Second World War, Hitler loved this. For him, what Britain did to India was the archetypal plan. The problem here is, in Europe at this point of time, say Germany was here, Britain was here. Well, almost here. France might have been here, Russia might have been here, but the differential just wasn't big enough. So it was completely overambitious. It was stupid. It was stupid in the First World War. It was stupid in the Second World War. And mind you, mind you, even by the time the Battle of Tannenberg happens and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is signed, the defeat of Germany on the Western Front was almost a foregone conclusion by this point. You look at the date of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, you, you know that they were going to be defeated. Okay, the food shortages and things had already started to hit home very, very badly. And the Germans negotiated such a bad treaty that they imposed huge penalties on Russia, where the communists absorbed it because they wanted to stay in power. They wanted to focus on the domestic civil war. So they were like, we'll give you whatever you need right now, uh, bugger off, and we're going to kill off all the Tsarists inside Russia. Uh, and what the Germans never calculated was that we can use Russia to supply us with food. We can say, okay, you deal mostly with that, but you have to provide us with food and arms and at least 100,000 men, uh, or, or even better, all the royalists that you're fighting, give them an exit out send them all to our front and we'll use them as cannon fodder on the Western Front. V. Tan wants to know, your thought on Russian economy and ordinary Russian? Uh, 
Uh, in what sense? Look, the Russian economy has largely become sanctions proof. Putin's done a very, very good job of sanction proofing that economy. What about the ordinary Russian do you want to know? Uh, Bharti Vats wants to know, what is your take on Indian Armed Forces preparedness in northern and eastern sector? The same as it is in every other sector, boss. We don't take security very seriously here. That 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 is the sad reality of it. Okay. Uh, I wanted to know, uh, what really went down on that helicopter in which Bipin Rawat flew? I don't know now. Uh, it's too old, but it, it it's almost certainly human error. We discussed this at that time. I told you it was human error. You remember? That there's absolutely no conspiracy angle to it. But uh, uh, with this thing, uh, the main thing is that lack, that lethargy that you see on the front line is duplicated even behind the lines uh, in terms of procurement, lackadaisical procurement, lackadaisical economics, lackadaisical everything. We do our troops a disservice because they paid a price for it. But you don't know, ultimately, nobody's ever held to account. There's nothing we can do about it. It is what it is. Um, do you want to continue for another half an hour? Or do you want to mm. call it now? Uh, let's take another four or five questions and yeah, let's take four or five my questions. Throat, my throat is drying up. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed. That's why I, I wanted to know. Shay Saxena wants to know out of curiosity, is there a reason why our PMs wear kurta pajama in India but Chinese suits abroad? Is there a rule or something? Mm, it's not a Chinese suit, it's a bangala. No, it's very different yeah. from a Chinese suit. A Chinese suit is very dingy. Uh, but uh, uh, it's not a rule, but apparently, you know, it's uh, it has to do, uh, I was told, uh, with the way the temperature is controlled abroad. In India, the air conditioning is to suit a kurta pajama environment. In the West, it is kept much colder. It's kept uh, apparently at the PMO. The temperature is kept at around 21 to 23 degrees, whereas in <coughs> Uh, most European interiors, it's kept at about 16, 17 degrees, which is requires you to be dressed in a kind of warmer uh, cloth. Uh, I found that. So, for example, at all my workplaces and offices in India, uh, in the winter, every time I'd wear a bandgala, I'd have to remove uh, my jacket and keep it open and things like that to ventilate and get too hot. In Europe, uh, on the inside, I've never had to remove my jacket because it keeps you cozy. You need it. You need it to keep you warm. Satyam Rai wants to know, Ajit Bharti got slapped with yet another lawsuit. Please suggest how we can reform judiciary in India, like selection process of judges. You declare the basic structure uh, judgment null and void. The basic structure judgment is the biggest constitutional coup that there is. It's a fundamentally, there is no greater uh, in, uh, 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 derailment of the constitution and unconstitutionality than the basic structure judgment. Okay, it violates every basic principle and a basic structure of the constitution, yet it is there. You have to get rid of the collegium. You have to bring in judicial accountability. Okay, uh, you have to keep all judicial families under perpetual. They have to sign off 
unless all their families agree to be monitored 24/7 especially their financial dealings and things you can't become a judge these are things you fundamentally have to do okay make it tough to impeach that's fine but if you find irregularity and things you have to go after them dharadhar you don't do it best of luck next question from shrey saxena again according to wire historian janki bakle has accused vikram sampath of plagiarism is there any weight to it no wire i read that piece she hasn't listen there are two issues one is the book on savarkar which is what audrey truskey raised but the basic focus of the plagiarism allegation is the uh, uh, <coughs> article a five page article that appeared in the india foundation journal okay now remember that uh, because i have written for the india foundation journal i can tell you that uh, uh, you know the uh, footnoting they have rules you can't put more than 20 25 references and things like that and it's a very generic kind of footnoting number one uh, uh, you know the uh, 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 second thing is that in this case it was a transcribed speech uh, which they transcribed sent to uh, 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 vikram uh, i don't know if they sent it to vikram but, uh, but i've done these kind of things before so uh, not with india foundation but you know where speeches have given have been transcribed and they'll just uh, whatsapp you and say sir can we get some references and you'll think ha is speech mein maine kahan kahan reference dala hai and you get the 10 15 references that you think you've done it's done as a very informal process now when they do it as an actual journal article then you take a lot more care but it's a transcribed speech you really couldn't be bothered because while speaking you've kind of provided you can't really reference in a speech you know because your speech is your narrating a story uh, speeches don't have a certain uh, it's a much more there is a convention but it's not an academic rule it's not a a, a, a kind of terminable fault kind of thing as it is in written this thing for a reason because in writing you have time to consider so here it was transcribed and sent to vikram sampath uh I don't even know if it was said to him, but all I know from having worked with India Foundation is when these things get uh, uh, this thing, they'll say, "Sir, koi reference hai apke paas," and you just off the top of your mind after you've delivered the speech, because I never write down my speeches. Now I uh, just jot down points that I have to give, and then I tell them, "Ha, iska reference idhar hoga, iska iska reference ad um, uh, uh, Angus Madison dekhlo, iska reference uh, uh, ye." Uh, Uh, discovery of india dekh lo no page numbers or anything you like bhai tere ko pata hai na kahan hai jaake dal de usme it's a much more informal process so the this thing relates to that five page transcribed speech as uh, she has not accused him of plagiarism she has said that yes there seems to be a great similarity between what i have written and what he has said uh, and if it was transcribed then they both need to apologize for it she has not said anything about plagiarism in the book and in this case i think it's pretty much one of those format issues which going forward you might have to consider ibiza ka raja this is the last question abhijit if you are making 150k or so on half flat would you live in miami new york city or south mumbai south delhi 
need chef and maid, money not issue, but lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I would choose neither Miami or New York City. Uh, maybe South Delhi, yeah. Uh, but not Miami, not New York City, not Mumbai. Personally, if I were making $150,000 a year, I would probably stay in either Rome or Vienna or Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, yeah. Uh, or, yeah, that's. I think that's where I'd stay. Hmm. I think that's uh, that's it for today. Thanks for watching, viewers. And we'll try and see if we can pick up the unanswered questions. It depends upon how much time Abhijit uh, has. If he has time, he will record the answers. Uh, and how many how many unanswered questions do we have? Uh, can we put up the thing on the display, please? Let's see. How many still to be answered? We will let you know. So he has a lot. It's not small. Okay, I'll record it and we'll put it up. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Abhijit. And viewers, okay. thanks for your support. Please don't forget to also subscribe to our second channel. We're going to put the link for the second channel in the show more of this question and answer so that you know where to look for when the answers appear. Thanks very much. And uh, Mr. Dandapani, it was a pleasure talking to you, sir. We hope to have you back very soon. Namaskar. Namaskar.